Our reading for today comes from the sixth chapter of Isaiah, verses 1 through 8, a vision of God in the temple. Listen for the word of God. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lofty, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphs were in attendance above him. Each had six wings, with two they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The pivots on the thresholds shook at the voices of those who called, and the house filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphs flew to me, holding a live coal that had been taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. The seraph touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed and your sin is blotted out. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Holy and gracious God, I pray that you'll speak through me and when and where necessary in spite of me. And Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. In your name we pray. Amen. This morning in the time that I have with you all, I'd like to preach and teach on a sermon entitled Glory Days. Glory Days. So last May, I was on the way back from Raleigh, North Carolina, where I had uh, emceed the senior award ceremony at my high school. And I committed to making sure in that uh, it was dark, it was like 2 a.m., uh, I committed to making sure I attended a Bruce Springsteen concert in my life. Now, a month before, I would have said that I was not a fan. I mean, I knew who he was because I was born in the USA. But... <laughs> But I'm not sure that my declaration signaled a change in my fandom of Bruce Springsteen. However, I had spent 18 hours and 12 minutes listening to the boss tell his own story as I listened to his audible version of his memoir, Born to Run. As Bruce narrated his story about his love of Asbury Park and the tales of the E Street Band, I got really caught up in the story. It was a story that was set in a particular time and a particular place, and it was a story that uh, spoke to both the broader cultural tides and one's unique journey. The way he described his live shows made them sound almost divine. As Bruce spoke, and various people have confirmed to me, Patrick included, when you go to a Bruce Springsteen concert, it's something where heaven and earth seem to merge together and the lines get blurred. Now I have been in, up in enough, I've been to enough concerts to know that live music can be transcendent, and I only wait to be, to feel that experience when I see the boss live. And so as I drove up I-95 that night, I thought both about what it must have been like to see a rock star live at the height of their career, 
and chuckled at the fact that I had driven home for less than 18 hours to emcee the senior awards night for my high school. Now I can say with 100% certainty that I never received any awards in high school. And it was my mediocrity and our family friend who was a guidance counselor that had led me to be the emcee of the senior awards night. So obviously I brought my best friend from high school, Anna. And like any friends who share a similar sense of humor in 20 years of friendship, we found ourselves laughing at places that weren't acceptable and trying to hold in our uncontrollable laughter. And following the event, we couldn't help but reminisce about our years at that very high school. And I'm not sure Anna or I would count them as glory days, but the memories were more good than bad. And it definitely, like many people, may mark a certain time and ethos in our lives. And perhaps as memories of Enloe High School collided with the stories of Bruce Springsteen, I couldn't help but think of glory days. Perhaps the boss was indeed right. Glory days will indeed pass by in the blink of an eye. In the year King Uzziah died, it is in this tumultuous history of Israel that the Israelites lived with relative stability during the reign of Uzziah. While he had taken ill and left the throne before his death, when he left the throne, it ushered in a time of instability. Isaiah's career as a prophet will largely take place during the years of Assyrian occupation. Was it in that, was it in the finality of death and the inevitable reminiscing that comes with shock and mourning that made Israel recall the, well, that made Isaiah recall the good old days? The death of Uzziah places his prophetic ministry in a certain time. Isaiah will prophesy to an occupied people. He will speak to both king and country. And with the death of Uzziah, we learn the historical moment and the historical context of the man who surrenders himself to the weight of speaking on behalf of God. In the shaken and smoky courts of heaven, God's holiness cannot be contained to celestial chambers, but like the train of a gown, brushes against the walls of the temples and grafts Isaiah into the enormity of God's story. Often this portion of Isaiah is entitled The Call of Isaiah, but perhaps it might alternatively be named The Consequences of Eavesdropping in the Temple. The scripture invites us into the temple. There is no previous context to let us know why Isaiah is there, or who else might have witnessed this fantastical display of God's glory and holiness. Perhaps Isaiah had stayed after the temple to close doors and shut off lights, though there was no electricity at this time. (laughs) And he accidentally fell into the scene of winged praises. Or perhaps we meet a man in the temple that day who had prayerfully hoped to feel God's presence mightily. For faith is not always a constant mountaintop. So at times we need something to stir us, to beckon us back. The rulers of the Assyrian Empire who had occupied Israel spoke of the enormity of their earthly rulers in hopes of scaring people into allegiances. And as big as any earthly ruler might claim to be, there is an expansive God whose splendor we can only experience from the fringes. Yet even from those fringes, the glory of God, the grandeur of her holiness, will shake not only our souls, 
but will have the very grounds trembling. We glimpse through this autobiographical snippet a God who cannot be contained to the temple. Even the 15-foot-high throne in the inner sanctum of the temple feels like a preschooler's chair in comparison to the God who formed the world and fashioned a people. Isaiah sees the Holy of Holies in the temple. His sighting consisted with prophets' conviction that Jerusalem was the seat of God's universal sovereignty and power. To experience God here in the temple says something about who Isaiah might be. Is he a priest already charged with being a carrier of the word or a committed leader in the temple? Isaiah overhears the choral commotion of the heavenly chambers in the temple, God's earthly dwelling. He witnesses worship in the clouds. The primary commotion in the throne room is this unending doxology of the divine choir. Praises seep up from heaven and onto earth. And the glory of God is so radiant, so beautiful, that even the seraphim, God's winged attendants, must cover their eyes. What sets God apart, what makes this a holy encounter, is the uncomparable, indescribable, radical way that God is not us. God is something other and majestic. And yet, God cares enough to be involved in our waking up and our lying down. The holy God is never too magnificent to talk with us, to engage in the earthly realm, always seeking to make it like the celestial one. And what is the prophet's response to all of this? What is the response to witnessing the worship of God from the highest courts? It is a declaration of Isaiah's humanity. From the edge of glory comes the fearful cry of humanity exposed to the divine otherness of the Lord God. We, like Isaiah, are not worthy. We are not worthy of the relentless love and pursuit. We are not worthy of the unfailing bond of the covenant. We are not worthy of the mercy that is new every morning. And yet, and still as unworthy as we may be, sinful and broken as we are, whether by our own conscious action or the systems of division, greed, and hate that we cannot seem to escape, we witness to a God who stoops to our level, the level of a broken humanity, and lets us get an earshot, an eyesight of a divine discussion, knowing that just this brush with God's own divinity might graft us into the story of God. Isaiah's declaration of unworthiness is also a reminder that this whole scene in the throne room is following a pattern of worship. There is praise, there is confession, there is forgiveness. There is ascending forth, and in all of this, God's word is proclaimed. Isaiah confesses that not only is he uniquely a man of unclean lips, He is from a people of unclean lips. His confession is simultaneously individual and corporate. He speaks not of particular indiscretions, but the state of sin, the guilt of which no human can escape. The cries of confessions are heard and coal is upon his lips because forgiveness for Isaiah is a tactile act. 
Isaiah is granted pardon and the burnt release of a hot coal removed from his lips and his guilt erased. It too, this forgiveness is indescribable, humbling, unimaginable. It too is the holy glory of God. And there is something about these glory days that may lead Isaiah into his own glory days. Purged from his guilt and with lips recently cleaned, when God asks for a volunteer, whether or not God speaks directly to Isaiah on earth, in this earth and heaven straddling conversation, Isaiah signs up. The holiness of God is too much not to be conscripted into the work of this God to be a part of seeing to it that the glory of God reaches all the people of God. Isaiah has been set up and set apart for this work. From the divine realm's doxology to the coal that touches his lips, he is conscripted and consecrated for service to the Lord. But there are consequences. Normal has now become a thing of the past, and Isaiah will be thrust into a world with a message that will perplex and confuse. He will tell people that they won't get it, and God wills it that way. He will speak for God not in ways that clarify and explain, but that reflects how God's mercy and God's judgment are the paradoxical truth of the people of the covenant. We find here a beautiful rendering of what happens when we are merely grazed by the glory of God. We find here that committing to this compelling story of God's justice and worship is not for the perfect, but for the penitent. God calls not just the warrior, but the willing. We are reminded in these glory days of Isaiah that even after being touched by the hem of his garment, the reception is not always from those who are ready, but those who are reticent. And our attempts to describe the glory of God will always be distant descriptions. They will be both heartfelt and feeble. For in just a brush with the divine, a brush similar to the touch of static cling, has the power to change us and change the world forever. With stakes this high, perhaps we cannot help but to sign up, to respond to the call with our presence and our entire being, claiming, here I am, send me. Maybe in these glory days we throw caution to the wind, not sure of what kind of work we have signed up to do when we surrender. God's call and Isaiah's response comes with consequences. Consequences that include ears that don't want to hear, eyes wide shut, and closed hearts. Consequences that include the charred lips of a prophet and priest whose life changed when he was eavesdropping in the temple. Perhaps this charred-lipped prophet was expecting that when you hang out alone in the place where God is said to reside, you might get swept up into God's business. That when glory days pass you by, when you are on the edge of glory, you might be faced with a moment of truth that you have signed up to be a part of God's business and the business of God's judgment and God's mercy. As Walter Brueggemann says, the throne room of God is the policy room of world government. There is business to conduct. There is creation to manage. There are messages to be sent. 
and the government of Yahweh needs a carrier. Then I heard the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.